0: Welcome to Poppyland Songs, hashtag Life on a Cliff Edge, written and produced by me, your host, Bertie. Poppyland Songs is supported using public funding through Arts Council. There
1: upon the cliffs you'll find Poppyland, where it all
0: began. Episode 5, Misty Visions. Those who lived and died in Poppyland. Hello again, welcome back to Poppyland Songs. Um, I feel like I should put a little warning today as I'm going to be sharing some ghost stories in this episode. So if that's not your thing, or perhaps if there's little ears listening, then you know, maybe take care with this episode. Don't worry, there's nothing too scary. <laughs> If you found yourself listening to this episode having not listened to any others then perhaps have a listen to the first four episodes so you know what's going on. You can find them on the Poppyland Radio website or on my website, BertieBow.com So, in short, my name is Bertie I am a musician and composer. I'm collecting stories, past, present and future, from this tiny part of the world known as Poppyland, which is where I grew up. The stories I have been gathering are the inspiration for a song cycle celebrating life on a cliff edge. I'm still seeking people who'd like to share their story with me, so if you want to get involved then please get in touch at poppylandsongs at gmail.com. Since the last proper episode, I had the most wonderful time performing Poppyland songs live at the Belfry in Overstrand with a band of brilliant, talented fellow local musicians and a very beautiful, kind, engaged and supportive audience. If you came to the show, then thank you so much for supporting this project. I'd love to hear from you. If you were one of those who couldn't get in,
1: it was a sellout
0: show. (laughs) I'm so sorry. The first half was on Poppyland Radio last week, so it should be on the catch-up service now if you'd like to listen back. And I'll pop the second half on next time in two weeks. I suppose also I could just do more concerts, right? Here's a little snippet from the show. This is the song, When the Skies Are Weeping.
1: When the skies are weeping When the soft rains fall Where the flowers lie sleeping by the air.
0: somewhat preoccupied with the idea of the cliffs falling down. There were a few major slips when I was growing up there. And of course, there's the story of the old Sidestrand Church Tower that Clement Scott fell in love with and wrote his famous poem, The Garden of Sleep, about in 1883. Well, that finally fell down the cliff in 1916. But the ground around it had been sliding down for many years and much of the graveyard would have been on the seaside of the tower. So, have you ever wondered what happened to 500 years worth of graves? Whenever there was a new slip, would bones tumble onto the beach below?
2: When we lived at Sidestrand, opposite the church, uh, there were various villagers who, who told us st- stories from the past. And one was Ted Chadwick, whose father had been the uh, general factotum for Sidestrand Hall Estate and the Hall family.
0: General what? Oh. What's a factotum?
2: Uh, the man who did everything. He was the repairman, um, and he kept the building in good order and so on, and he was a carpenter.
0: If you hadn't guessed, this is my dad, Eddie Anderson, talking.
2: And he said that whenever there was a cliff fall uh, along the, the um, edge of the cliff... What, where the churchyard was for the old church. This would have been after the church had actually been removed inland. The gardener, the head gardener, would take the garden boy down to the edge and dangle him by his ankles over the edge so that the boy could pull the bones from the cliff face that were exposed six feet lower down. And then they would be put in a basket, brought back up to the level and then carried inland to the new position of the church and there buried in a communal grave. And it sounds improbable except I've actually seen the communal grave, which is fragments of medieval bone. Hundreds of them, hundreds. It's a great story, whether it's entirely true, I think it probably is, because whether the dangling happened is another matter, but certainly if the bones were exposed in that way, somebody went down and gathered them up as you would and some of those people would have been laying there for 500 years uh, in the dry dry sand how's that
0: my family don't believe in ghosts we've never been superstitious but we did live in a very old house as i've mentioned a few times the house i grew up in was in sidestrand north norfolk Garden Close, or now known as Garden House, is the house directly opposite the entrance to Sidestrand Hall. My parents and sisters moved in in 1976, exactly two years before I was born.
3: It was very old-fashioned.
0: That's my mum, Tina Anderson. She grew up in Wells.
3: It felt like it hadn't been changed since Later. 1930s. Oh, earlier. <laughs> earlier.
2: There was wallpaper that was coming off the walls that was probably pre-World War I.
3: And it stood erect as it came off. There was so much paste and glue in it that it didn't fall down, it just stood. It was charming and we didn't really change it very much.
0: Did, how long had it been empty for? Had it been empty?
2: Not for very Almost long. Almost not empty at all. I think what had happened is that the Hoare family um, did it up for Kit, for Christabel. Um, and I think she was going to she was expecting to live there with her husband.
0: If you remember from the first episode, Kit married Ivor Hood and they moved into Gardener House and had baby Richard in 1917.
2: So any decoration and so on was at that time. And they had even altered this, what was probably originally a row of workmen's cottages. And they had altered it so that there was even a, a sort of a, a staff area. It was quite small, but there was a staff area, and then um, where they could keep the nanny and maybe the cook. The first servant that they had was um, Mrs. Mrs. Royal, and she was not Mrs. Royal. She was the nanny. She was the nanny. Yes, the only things I can't.
0: But I hadn't got my parents in just to talk about wallpaper and the old nanny. There was something else about this house. That I wanted them to talk about something unexplained, something misty. Did either of you, at any point, have any um, unexplainable things happen whilst you lived in the house?
3: Mm-hmm. Numerous times, but I have to, I have to say, the house was very quiet, nice house. It wasn't a scary house. You know, like, some houses have areas that... Well, I've been in houses where there are some areas you're not very comfortable with. It was always a, a, a safe house. But there was this thing, which I didn't know that Eddie had had the same experience, but I used to have, I don't know, once every two or three months over the period we lived there, when I would walk into our bedroom... This would be in the daytime. I wouldn't be able to quite see across the room. And I always just think, oh, there's something weird with my eyes and I'd blink them and and then it would be gone. But this happened <laughs> it happened quite a lot of times.
0: It, and you didn't say anything to
3: Dan? No, it, I mean it didn't worry me particularly. I, I just thought oh, there's a there's a mist again. And,
0: what, and so you were also I'm, seeing the mist?
2: I was seeing exactly the same thing not actually in the same room I would go up the staircase and there was a room which, which uh, was right opposite but I can remember that it would always be uh, when you were on your own you'd go upstairs and if you open that door the room wasn't very big and it had a bright window and just as Tina has described you'd have that sense of there being a sort of mist in the room. You couldn't see a mist, but you couldn't see clearly. And you also had a sense, and this does sound improbable, that actually you'd interrupted someone. And you didn't hear anything, there was nothing to see, there no. were no people there, but there and was, was a always, sense of...
3: it was always in daytime.
2: Always in daytime. Mm. And I never told Tina, because I just thought, oh, this is silly, because it's ghost stories and I don't believe in ghosts. And it wasn't until we were having supper with some friends a long time later.
0: After you'd moved out?
2: I think we had 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 moved moved out. out, And then I told the story. No, I heard Tina telling the story. And I said, but I've seen exactly the same thing. And we'd never actually compared notes. But it was very real in the sense that we both had the same experience. But that sense of it being a very friendly house was very lovely. Mm-hmm. It was always a friend. You were never scared in the
1: house. I
0: was. Well, maybe you were more very, sensitive. I was. There were definitely areas in the house that I was frightened of. Which? And the room off your bedroom.
2: Oh, yes, that's that,
0: I go on to list pretty much every room in the house. And I do have a memory of also seeing this mist, in particular in the room that my dad talked about. Though uh, I don't entirely trust my memory. I had a very active imagination as a kid. I was remembering how for many, many nights I would go into the cupboard in that room mm-hmm. that was where you led up to the attic, and I'd close my eyes and I'd put my hands forward, <laughs> believing that one time I'd reach Narnia.
3: <laughs> but yep. I always hit the wall. Um,
2: Before we moved in
3: Just a minute. What cupboard? Look.
0: There was a cupboard and she did eventually remember it.
2: Here comes the US Air Force. Um. shut <laughs> up,
0: And then there is also the experience my aunt had at Garden Close not long before my family moved in.
2: I remember her telling me at the time. I do, do and how she'd stayed in the house with her husband just before we moved in. And she woke in the middle of the night, thinking there was somebody standing over her—a clergyman. And she said, "No she, she described this short, rather round man, and um, uh, just looking at her. So she turned to her husband to wake him up. She was a bit surprised there should be somebody else in the room, and then when she turned back, and he'd woken up, found his glasses and everything else, the image had gone. And then I repeated this story to Mrs. Royal who had been the nanny in that house. And she said, oh, that was the Reverend So-and-so. He retired and lived in that house for that time. And it was from the description that Rachel told me and I told Mrs. Royal. All right, it was a retired clergyman in clergyman's outfit. But she said he was short and rather fat.
1: Mm.
2: And he was standing over my sister, looking at her. <laughs>
0: My dad also remembers me telling him about playing with another child in the house when I was young. This spooked him as there were no other children in the village or the house.
2: We wouldn't have encouraged you to think that the child you remembered or you talked about was in any any way a spirit <laughs> entity. We wouldn't have done that because that would have scared you horribly. <laughs> yeah.
0: So. There you go. An old house where tragedy had struck. Misty visions, dark corners, imaginary friends, and half forgotten memories. Page six of Kit's journal from 1914, entitled Mrs Moy. When Mrs charlon told her of a big rat that they had killed, she said, perhaps that was one of your enemies. And speaking of ghosts and haunted houses, she said, you can keep them out if you unhang the door and puts it on the other way round. Good advice. I'd like to tell you a couple of other stories that have been shared with me about spooky goings on in Poppyland. Someone who works at the Belfry Centre told me that one time they were in the kitchen area at the sink, washing up when they heard the voices of two women having a lively conversation. The sink is at the window and she hadn't seen anyone walk past to come in the building and had thought that she was alone in the building, but She thought perhaps she had missed them, or something. So she went out of the kitchen to see who it was and to see if they needed anything. But when she came out from around the dividing screen and stepped into the cafe area, all she could see was a shape that looked like two women standing in the corner, by the door into the main hall. They had no features, almost like outlines or shadows they moved off down the corridor towards the toilets and disappeared. She was so shocked and frightened that she immediately locked up and went straight home. Another time, she was there with another woman and had offered her a cup of tea. The woman responded and asked whether she should ask the other lady who was sat down just over there. What other lady? We're the only people here. The lady sat just there in the corner. The woman pointed to the same area and gasped, seeing that there was no one there at all. Who could these mysterious ghostly women be? Could it be an apparition of Sarah Buxton and Anna Gurney, the couple who had built the Belfry back in the 1830s? They were known locally as the Cottage Ladies because they lived at Northrop's Cottage together and described themselves as partners. They're both buried in Overstrand Churchyard, just 300 yards away, and the Belfry was their legacy. And what about the Headless Horseman? Have you ever heard of a Headless Horseman riding the hills around the lighthouse in Cromer? Well, Martin had. He'd heard about it, though he didn't know the details. But, he says, that one night he was walking back to Overstrand over the golf course. And as he got to the lighthouse and started to drop down, it was quite dark, he said. And as he started to drop down towards Overstrand, he heard this thundering galloping around him. His dog was going completely crazy, freaking out, barking. All he could hear was the unmistakable sound of horse's hooves galloping around him. But he could see no horse. I'm intrigued by this headless horseman. I'd not heard about this before. Have you? Can you tell me any other stories to do with it? Poppylandsongs at gmail.com There is also the place known as Shrieking Pits, down a lane off Hungry Hill in Northreps. This is a path I walked down many times as a child, as it was the quickest cross-country route from my house in Sidestrand to Templewood in Northreps, where my granny verily lived. My parents would allow me to go on my own, on my bike or on foot. And these moments of freedom provided a tingle of fear and a shimmer of excitement to the adventure. The route is mostly across fields in bright daylight. But then you come to a small wooded area. On a hot summer's day it feels deliciously cool to get out of the glaring sun. But it was never somewhere I would ever want to linger for long. There is a deep pool of water surrounded by trees and bushes. One of the trees, a gnarly old oak, right by the path, is almost horizontal, growing outwards and over the dark water. It tempts you to walk out across its green and mossy back to look down into the water between its forked branches. But beware for what lies beneath. I always had a sense of foreboding about this place. The black water, shaded gloom and seemingly chill air even on a hot day, was enough for me to pass through quickly and never to dawdle. Now I'm fairly certain that this fear was stoked by my parents, who would have had a genuine concern that I might fall in and get myself into trouble. But I don't think they would have encouraged any superstitious thoughts. However, I was quite capable of that all by myself. A notice board appeared a few years back, telling a story that we'd not known about. That of a young woman. Esmeralda, who was spurned by her married lover, a local farmer. According to this story, she was heartbroken and fell into a deep depression, and one February night, she heard a deep voice calling to her from the cold, frost-covered water. Come to me, my darling. Come to me, my darling Esmeralda. She threw herself into the water, I suppose in some sort of trance. But the moment she hit the cold water, she realised her mistake and shrieked for help. But no one came to help, besides one brave man, and by the time he arrived, he heard a final terrifying shriek, and she was never seen or heard of again. I've wondered about this story. Two things. Firstly, is this a genuine folk legend? Does this story go back for generations, or was it written in the more recent past to give a story to the name Shrieking Pits? If you know more about this tale of woe, then please get in touch. Populansongs at gmail.com Secondly, I don't accept this narrative. It seems somehow unbelievable. So let me share with you how I think it really went down. Days had gone by and she had not heard from her love. This was unlike him. He would always find a way to see her. After two weeks of hearing nothing, she was beside herself with fear and misery. Had something terrible happened to him? Had there been an accident? Or had someone found out about their affair? But surely he would send her a message if he could. She couldn't wait a moment longer. She decided under pretense of buying eggs, she would go to his farmhouse she wasn't sure what she would do but she just knew she had to see him and find out what had happened. That afternoon she cautiously approached his front gate and there in the yard she saw him looking fine and strong and healthy. She was about to call out to him when she saw his wife. They were laughing together. They looked so happy. It was at that moment that he glanced her way, and for a fraction of a second she saw something in his eyes before they looked right through her, as if she wasn't there. And then he pulled his wife to him, and they kissed tenderly before he led her into the farmhouse without a single glance back at her. Esmeralda was beside herself and ran all the way home. She spent the next few weeks distraught and out of sorts. She felt foolish and angry and terribly sad. How could he have turned his back on her so abruptly when she knew he loved her? She couldn't sleep at night, hot and confused and full of anger and tears. So she would walk. She would walk through the cold midwinter nights, hoping the frigid air would cool her head and her thoughts. And it was on one of these nights that in a rush of cold dread, she realised that she had not had her monthly bleed. The next day at the market, she managed to get close enough to him to tell him in a hurried whisper that she carried his child, that he could not forsake her now. She would be ruined without him. Please, please come back to me. If you shan't, I will tell the whole world that the child is yours. He spoke roughly and with great emotion. I cannot speak to you here. Meet me tonight in the usual place. That night, giddy with excitement to see her love again, all alone. Surely when he held her in his arms, he would be reminded of his love and they would be reunited. As she stepped into the darkness under the trees, she heard his voice. Come to me, my darling. Come to me, my darling Esmeralda. She could see his familiar outline. He was standing on the young oak tree that lent out peculiarly across the water with his arms outstretched to her. She ran to him and for a moment felt so perfectly happy in his strong, muscular arms. But suddenly she was falling. No, she was being pushed, shoved, pushed down into the deep, dark water by her love. He nearly overbalanced, and she was able to come up for air and started to scream, but he had pushed her back down into the freezing water. She managed to surface one final time and let out a desperate shriek into the night, before he brought a branch down upon her head, sending her down into the darkness. Hope you enjoyed that the underscore was something I wrote many years ago when I was somewhat obsessed with the music of horror films I even wrote my final dissertation on the subject at university and this piece I wrote around that time for string or and is called below the line and it was a score for an imagined horror movie so I'm really happy to have found a place for it finally if you want to hear it in full you can find it on my website bertiebow.com on the composer page we can't have an episode about spooky things without mentioning Black Shuck. My grandmother, who was a professional storyteller, Verily Anderson, took great delight in frightening us grandchildren with descriptions of Black Shuck, the mysterious dog that wandered the clifftops, and if you looked into its eyes, you'd die within the year. Kit notes that John Gray had often heard of Shuck but had never seen him. He did have a fright one night, though, walking home. The moon was shining and there were a white thing on to gate against Miss Underwoods. That were a prodigious size, looked bigger into moon and white as milk. Grey thought to go round another footpath and he stood there considering for a while. He says to himself, there ain't nothing as can hurt you boy. So goes up to that and that was old Turner's old white-faced cow, a dangling her head over to gate. That weren't no ghost after all. I found that there are a few versions of Shuck. Martin Robwell told me that in his family, Shuck had green eyes, and if you looked into them three times, then there'd be a death within your family. And Linz Holland had heard that if you saw it, you'd be turned to stone. What's your family version of Black Shuck? Here's mine.
1: Roamed across the cliff tops in the old lands of North Norfolk. Keep inside your sons and daughters, for the eyes are larger
2: souls. And according to thoughts sources, is
1: very red like the pits of hell. Don't you dare go go out Out. Out. The devil's dog with his head in his mouth Black shucks on the ground. If you're a fool out walking Then be sure it's you it's stalking
2: On silent giant black
1: poles. Not a sound it ever made No, no use in running. running You, you won't, won't hear, hear it coming If you see a dog shaped, don't fight it. Don't fight Close your eyes real tight uh, oh, uh, If you hear the hounds howling The darkest, darkest of nights, don't you care, dare go out, out. out. Oh, The devil's dog with his head in his mouth Black shuts um, on the prowl It doesn't stare Don't be taken for a fool Because it It doesn't doesn't smile at you If you look into its eyes
2: You'll be dead within the year
1: Or your mother or your brother or your sister or your aunt
2: Will be dead within the year Or a neighbour down the road or perhaps
1: his fish Will be dead
2: within the year
1: might not actually be a death. Something bad will happen. They'll be dead within the year. Oh, 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 oh. If you hear a a call, Howl Howl in the hounds howling the dark, Mr. Mice, and don't you dare go out. The devil's up with his head in his mouth like socks on the ground. Oh, oh, oh. If you hear the hounds Howl howling Howl in the dark, Mr. Mice, and don't you dare go out. Oh, oh. Oh, oh.
3: Black Shuck,
0: <laughs> that was Black Shuck, performed by Bojangles. I wrote Black Shuck for Poppyland Songs a few years ago, but around that time, Bojangles were writing a new show all about myths and legends called Excalibur, so it became a part of that award-winning show. <laughs> If you enjoyed it and you'd like to hear the rest of Excalibur, we recorded the whole show as an audio musical storybook, which you can find in all the usual evil streaming places, Spotify, Amazon, etc. Or even better, for us, you could buy an actual real signed CD album with a 16-page booklet from our website, bojangles.org. So, as you can see from the lyrics... My family had a twist on Shuck's description, that it somehow had its own head in its mouth. I'm not exactly sure where that came from, whether it was Granny's idea or another cousin trying to scare us even more. (laughs) Martin Robwell had another take on Black Shuck, that this dog that roamed the clifftops was in fact waiting for its owner to return from being away at sea. But the poor, faithful dog was to wait for an eternity as its owner never returned. Invoking the fear of Black Shuck was definitely useful to smugglers. A way to keep people indoors, averting their eyes from any shadows moving across the clifftops. But I'd love to hear other families' accounts of Shuck. Perhaps your family have a different version. Do you know anyone who lived to tell the tale of seeing Shuck? Speaking of
1: smugglers...
0: In Kit's journal on august the twenty first nineteen thirteen she writes, Hickleman's folly was so called from the time of the smugglers at that time of day. They used to lie up in the dyke and watch for the boat lying off Beck High. The women went along too. There was a vault in the old garden now the allotment another vault was in Stonehills in the planting. Now, we're not sure where the allotment was, but my dad tells me that Stonehills, in the planting, is the wood at the edge of Templewood. Maybe somewhere under the earth is a vault full of 200-year-old gin. Back to the journals. John Grey never went smuggling. I never got the chance. His poor old father did, and his grandfather, and grandmother, and they all got well paid for the job, according to him and apparently most of the houses took in the barrels of gin. Old Locker was one for smuggling. Gray's poor old father worked for him to take some barrels of gin away to Roughton. He had an old pony that had three legs, but that could fly. He came out of the gate with the pony and gin against Northrop's church. He saw the riding officer coming along. Hurry up, boy, says Old Locker to my poor old father, and away he went as hard as he could. And Old Locker watched him from the churchyard. When he came to Green Lane, leading on to Roughton Heath, he saw that he were further away from the riding officer than when he started, and he got clear away on the heath. The women were great at the smuggling and would carry the casks slung on their shoulders, just like the men. They carried two casks at a time, slung together by a rope. There was a gentleman called Ted Summers, or Ole Summers. He was a local blacksmith from Northreps, and allegedly the leader of the local smugglers. On June 10th, 1914, Kit writes that Grey worked five years for old Ted Summers at Northreps. He used to cart timber for him to and from Norwich and often wasn't in bed for several nights on end. Once I never saw a bed from six o'clock Wednesday morning till Saturday night. And when I got back a Sunday morning, old Summers' brother sent me to clear on a hull with my old father in Paulsums. That made my feet bad and they've been bad ever since. We've had to go to Norwich. Tree nights running in harvest time and do his harvest as well. Hmm. Suspicious much. Being away at night. Then there was Sally Bean, a notable character. Her house is named after her and stands up on the top of the hill behind Northrep's cottage and close to Shucks Lane. She would apparently shine her warning light to signal the smugglers. As we heard from John, it was not uncommon that many people aided and abetted the smuggling trade. Most people were unbelievably poor, so could you blame them? Louis, the maid of the mill, and her dad, Alfred, both talk of their smuggling adventures in her youth. John recalls, My poor old grandfather used to tell me of the old lady that lived in Pooley's house. She always had some gin in the house, and the riding officer, he came to ransack the house, and he couldn't interfere with a woman, and there she squatted, or pronounced squat, There she squat on gin with her skirt drawn down over it, and he never found it. Well, Pooley's house is now known as Sally Bean's. So that's who he's talking about. So the final song today is called Sally Bean, and it's all about Ted, Sally, and the deadly riding officer of Northrop's. Back when North
1: Norfolk was wild and lawless, there lived a blacksmith named Ted. He was a Summers But also a smuggler Of the local ring He was their head A woman named Sally Lived top of the valley With a twenty mile view Of the land From the top of Shucks Hill She'd give a signal For a share of your contraband Oh, Sally Beam For some Baggy and Gin Will you look out for me tonight? Oh, Shucks on the prowl With his blood curdling howl We don't want no travel tonight Oh, Sally Beam For some comes with his deadly young guns Shine bright your warning light For many a year this rogue racketeer Old Ted evaded arrest So many stories of his smuggling glories Round these parts he's known as the best his men overheard the herd, one officer's where they catch Ted as he crept from the coast. But Ted was ahead, he'd been told what was said, and tied the poor man to a post. Oh, Sally Beevil, some buggy and Jim we'll look out for me tonight. Old oh, Shuck's on the prow with his blood cackling howl, we don't want no travel tonight. Oh, shine your warning light. A new ship was coming in, supplying Geneva gin, Ted and three lads lay in wait. But the officer this time, we're ahead of this new crime, put to see all the smugglers fate. The ambush begun and they fired their guns. Two lads dropped dead on the floor. The third they arrested. But old Teddy has fled in the darkness through Sally's back door. Oh, Sally, he wants a bagging in gin. Will you look travel we'll for me tonight? Old Chuck's on the prowl with his blood-curling howl. don't wanna travel tonight. Oh. any warning, the officer burst through the door of the foundry in Reps, but Ted was still four steps at least ahead of the law so sly old Summons had done another runner and disappeared into the woods but a suspicious old crone was off seen at his home furtive beneath her hood oh, tell me people for talking here you we all can for Shucks on the ground when they start burning town Don't want no travel to the
0: was a live performance of sally bean recorded at the belfry concert a few weeks ago i was joined on stage by an amazing group of local musicians evie anderson keith hobday rachel mcdonald kate Munro, ivan mccready and john payne that's it for this week as usual if you have anything to share with me then please do get in touch poppyland at gmail.com or find me on facebook instagram at bertie bow or visit my website bertiebow.com See you next time. Bye. Poppy Land Songs was hosted, written, produced and recorded by Me. It's a one-woman show.